0: Hey heya, Hey Episode 126 comprises three recent interviews conducted over the digital ether for your listening pleasure. I'll reverse the chronology though, placing Evan Townsend at the end, recounting the thinking and design process behind the True South flag, which means Elodie Compress, remains in the middle, drawing on her time sailing the Southern Ocean and living in the Kerguelen Islands and placing Associate Professor Priscilla Wehi at the start, speaking about her recent publication on Maori voyages in the Southern Ocean. A lot of articles about her article have been doing the rounds, and a lot of hubbub is bubbling up in response. Some people are saying, Hey, that's really interesting. What a great new avenue down which to assess our conceptions and perspectives on Antarctica. While some other people are saying, There's no way Polynesian mariners were getting about in the Southern Ocean, and there was no reason for them to go there, and, in short, I'm a middle-aged white man who feels so insecure in my cultural heritage that any evidence of any race other than whites ever doing anything significant must be suspect, and I'm willing to blurt exactly that loudly on the internet. Guess which group of people I'm choosing to spend my time and energy in dialogue with. Go on, guess. But before guessing, here's a book review. I don't review books often because people don't often ask me to review their books because they know that if I don't think much of it, I won't hold back putting my disdain into words. This means those books I do get sent to review are top shelf stuff, the author and or publisher having both confidence in their product and, more importantly, enough of a handle on reality that their confidence is warranted. Here's my review of With Scott Before the Mast by Francis Davies. Memoir, 2020, edited by Joy Watts, Reardon Publishing, Cheltenham, UK, review copy provided by Nicholas Reardon. The growing ranks of posthumously published Antarctic memoirs received a unique edition in 2020. With Scott Before the Mast offers insights into the working and social lives of shipwright Francis Davies and these weave into a previously unobtainable perspective on one of the best-known narratives in all of polar history. Familiar characters gain new dimensions when seen through the eyes of shipwright Davies, and his recounting of events both significant, drilling through a steel bulkhead during The Gale in order to clear the pump intakes and prevent the ship from foundering, and Marginal, meeting the Dutch show wrestler whose name carried south in the form of an ornery pony, Offer insights that will enrich any existing understanding of the British Antarctic expedition. My favourite aspects of the book involved familiar and much loved campaigners taking on fo'c'sle nicknames and a new life in escapades beyond the ken of the officers and scientists, and in Davy's focused concern that the Bolton and Paul cutting list for the shore party huts matched what went aboard the Terra Nova. Day to day life aboard sailing ships of the era continues to hold fascination for anyone with maritime interests. To read of these minutiae tied to the epic scale and tragedy of the events Chippy Davies witnessed makes this a compelling narrative. Illustrated with both iconic and lesser-known images arising from the BAE and featuring additional minutiae and their associated insights drawn from Chippy Davies' box of Antarctic mementos, this book constitutes a handsome and worthy addition to any maritime or polar bookshelf. I'm giving potential payola accusations a swerve by putting the review copy up as a prize in a future ice coffee competition I haven't yet conjured. I should mention here, too, that the last prize went to Steph, who correctly identified the song I was learning in the Scott-based bar in 2004, and which I first heard as the closing music in the 1981 BBC television adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as being What a Wonderful World, written by Bob Teal and George David Weiss, and first recorded and made famous by Louis Armstrong. On to the interviews. Here's the citation and abstract of Associate Professor Priscilla Wahey's paper as a prologue to our discussion. Quote, Journal of the Royal Society of New Zealand. Brief Report. A Short Scan of Maori Journeys to Antarctica. Priscilla M. Wehi, Nigel J. Scott, Jacinda Beckwith, Rata Pryor Rogers, Tasman Gillies, Vincent van Utrecht, and Crucial Watini. 2021. Abstract. The narratives of underrepresented groups and their connection to Antarctica remain poorly documented and acknowledged in the research literature. This paper begins to fill this gap. Our exploration of Maori connections to Antarctica details first voyages through to involvement in recent science projects, as well as representations of Maltauranga in carving and weaving. This exploration begins to construct a richer and more inclusive picture of Antarctica's relationship with humanity. By detailing these historical and contemporary connections, we build a platform on which much wider conversations about New Zealand relationships with Antarctica can be furthered. More than this, however, we create a space for underrepresented groups and peoples to articulate their narratives of connection to the southern land and seascapes. In so doing, we provide significant first steps for uncovering the rich and varied ways in which Antarctica features in the lives and futures of Indigenous and other underrepresented communities. End quote. I'm a professional journalist. I'm a marine ecologist who currently works in trauma cleaning. So please forgive me if my mode is chaotic.
1: Oh, no, that's right. I was... Um, so I was going to ask you, what. so what? Uh, where do your podcasts go? Who listens to your podcasts? It's a a mix of people
0: with an interest in maritime history and Antarctic history and a number of people working in Antarctica. It seems to have found its audience mostly with the the base staff.
1: Oh, cool. So they
0: can't download it day to day when they're working there, but they take it down in caches. So that's been really, really satisfying. So very grateful to be speaking today to Associate Professor Priscilla Wehi. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Matt.
0: At the University of Otago, Professor Wehi is an ecologist who studies wetters and applies the same conservation ecology mindset to cultural and linguistic diversity and Recently published a very interesting paper on Polynesian or Maori voyages into the Southern Ocean, but before we get to that, I'd like to ha- I'd like to hear how you became interested in Antarctica and what path took you to Antarctica, please.
1: Oh, that's that's a great question, Matt. So, um, let me just start by um, thanking everyone for listening. So, him kia koto katoa e fakarongo e mai nei. Um, I started off actually as a zoologist, that's my my background, um, but as I went on in my career I realised increasingly that uh, for conservation to work um, it's actually all about people, so there's a huge interface where science meets society, where people need to know what science is about and uh, they need to be able to trust science. And so the study of socio ecological systems became much more my focus as I've gone on simply because of its importance. Um, so the effects that we as humans have on nature, um, and how we interact with nature, um, and how we are part of, um, all of those systems. So that's, um, just a little bit of background around that. I was always interested in Antarctica. So as a zoologist, Antarctica is, And especially in New Zealand, when we have so many Antarctic scientists going south, um, uh, right from the time I was doing my Bachelor of Science, I I wanted to be one of those people. And actually, I put in several unsuccessful um, funding applications and couldn't seem to find my way there. Uh, It's a very competitive path, and I didn't know the right people, which is actually an experience that's uh, very common to many people in science and particularly to women. Uh, so I, I couldn't quite find my path there as a, as a, an emerging scientist. So it's only later I, I actually went to Antarctica, um, as part of a women in leadership expedition, uh, with Homeward Bound. And that was, uh, three years ago now. That was the first time I actually went and it wasn't to do science. It was to, um, experience Antarctica with a group of 80 other women on a ship um, in the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, but of course, that really got me thinking again um, about some of the issues that Antarctica faces and um, how we can protect uh, a part of the world that is not only unique in itself, but also where what happens in Antarctica has a huge influence on the rest of the world. So yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a um wavy path, I guess, not very straightforward.
0: The <clears throat> the homeward bound expeditions have warranted attention for this series for a long time, and I've tried to follow up a couple of leads that have been given to me without success. So it's it's lovely to finally speak to someone that was part of part of that project. Um yeah. the question that I've been forgetting to ask guests on the series recently that I try to ask everyone that's been to Antarctica, what are the most inspiring and the most harrowing experiences you had in the far south? And you're welcome to come back to that Mm. after you've had a bit of a think. Moving on to your, your recent paper, you've recently been publishing about Polynesian Maori history in the Southern Ocean
1: so one of one of the things that I'm doing now is that I'm leading um, a strand of research in um, a much larger program, which is about the Ross Sea in Antarctica. So you'll um, probably know that in about 2017, the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area came into being, and it's the largest marine protected area um, in Antarctica, and really important in terms of um, the toothfish fishery, Um, The ecosystems in the Ross Sea is a really important um, initiative. So one of the things that we need to do is to monitor that to see how effective it is at actually protecting that ecosystem. So I'm involved in that project, but the part of the project that I'm involved in is called Vision Matauranga, which is about bringing Maori perspectives and uh, knowledge to bear on how we think about those ecosystems and more broadly, how we think about Antarctica. So you might say, well, how did I get into that, uh, being a zoologist? So the short answer is that, um, um, I've lived in the Māori community for many years. So my, my own origin is actually from Scottish forebears in New Zealand, you know, who arrived here about 150 years ago. But for many reasons, I've been involved in the Māori community. Uh, through um, deep friendships and also uh, through my partner who's Māori. So over 30 years, of course, and having children, um, issues around not just equity, which are really important, but also the different uh, ways of seeing and understanding the world have really come to the forefront of my mind as being Um, important ways that we can start to think about conservation so if we start to think about what are our responsibilities to other beings in the world for example or instead of thinking about what are our rights in Antarctica as humans we start thinking about what are our responsibilities to this part of the world that's unique and important so um so the reason, the way that we got into this paper and into this work was uh, through this Vision Mātauranga part of the project and trying to um, think in different ways about protection and analysing and assessing uh, success in terms of protected areas.
0: And the evidence that your papers assess in terms of. The Maori perspective and history in association with Antarctica and the Southern Ocean. Can you can you talk listeners through how you how you gathered the information that you then synthesised?
1: Yeah. So we did two things. So the first thing that we did was we we said um, we want to just review what information is out there at the moment about Maori and Antarctica because that was something that hadn't really been done. We knew that there were lots of bits of information, uh, but nobody had actually gathered those together in one place. So that was the first thing that we did. And that was um, when we gathered together, for example, oral traditions and some of the 19th, looked at some of the 19th century archives recording oral traditions around Maori voyaging to the Antarctica. So that's where those stories of Huiterangiorda, who was a Polynesian explorer, came down from the Cook Islands. So those stories about Huiterangiorda, who uh, sailed into the Southern Ocean and came back reporting about huge walls of um, what we think are ice. So he described them, remembering he came from the tropics. So he described them um, as being very similar to arrowroot, which is the white, starchy. Um, inners of tubers from the tropics so he talked about um, the way that he described it was uh, in ways that his listeners could understand living in tropical homelands but it's fairly evident to us that he was actually talking about walls of ice and other marine creatures so those those uh, traditions of wheatrangi order and other Polynesian and Maori explorers they've come down um, through that, through those sources through and are recorded. And uh, so that was part of our review. We really wanted to know, you know, is there a history of Māori um, visiting Antarctica or sailing in the Southern Ocean? And the answers are pretty strong yes. So we know there are other Māori who have been on um, expeditions in the 19th century, so those European voyages of discovery that probably many of your listeners will be more familiar with. Um uh, some were on whaling expeditions, so Norwegian whalers during the same period. And there were some who were visiting Antarctica in the early 20th century. So, for example, uh, Louis Portaka, who went down as the ship's doctor in, in the 1930s. Uh, so there's it actually turns out that there's quite a long history of um, Maori that we know of who have been visiting Antarctica through the last few hundred years, as well as the earlier explorers. And, you know, there are many Maori who have also gone as part of the Defence Force, um, who have been working on base, and we don't actually know those stories yet. Um, And we're actually hoping to talk to a lot more people and uh, talk to them about their stories and experiences and those kinds of roles, because I think those are often overlooked, actually. Yeah, so that was the first step. Um, The second step then uh, was to say, so, okay, so here's a review of what we know at the moment about Māori and Antarctica. Now let's think about the knowledge systems themselves and the different perspectives that a Māori knowledge system might bring. And so that's thinking about uh, the relationships that we have. So Māori knowledge systems, are very relational. Um, so it's much more about how? What are our responsibilities to Antarctica? Um, how can we uh, be good? Be good ancestors is, is a phrase that you often hear. So, how can we leave um, the world in better shape than we found it for our future generations of kids? So that's always a focus in Maori philosophy: is how can we do better for the future people, the future world? Um, yeah,
0: that. Shift from thinking about rights to thinking about responsibilities is a very exciting concept for me. The people that I've worked with in Antarctica, their ambassadorial mindset that they come away from that continent with is really heartening, that they they come away with a perspective on their own cultures quite often that sees them quite often ignoring national boundaries or cultural barriers and wanting to share their experience with as broad an audience as possible. And if our national programs can get past that sort of pissing on the fence posts mindset that it seems to have now and move forward with a a sense of responsibility, that could feed back into the, the home nations and perhaps... Antarctica, which has become the the poster child for preservation for humanity's future, could inform those cultures in terms of thinking about responsibility at a, a broader scale from the top down rather than from the bottom up, which we're currently working with. So that's – sorry, I'm babbling.
1: No, that's great. <laughs> yeah, one of, one of the interesting things for us is – um, how, how can we communicate um, that transformational shift that many of us have when we go to Antarctica to other people who may not have that opportunity to go? So how do we communicate, um, yeah, those responsibilities? So one of the things actually I've got recently involved in and that we mentioned in the, in the research that we did is we talk about legal personhood as being one possibility for doing that. So if we internationally work together to um, create legal personhood for Antarctica, would that make a difference in terms of how it's protected and looked after? Um, So I think there's great um, possibility in some of those kinds of mechanisms. Um, So legal personhood's been applied to rivers in various different parts of the world. For example, um, in India and South America, here in New Zealand, um, and if we protect something with legal personhood, then it shifts away from that extractive kind of uh mindset towards um uh something that's much more reciprocal and where uh care of that environment and of um that environment itself having rights and no longer being the passive recipient of what we want to do to it. Um, I think there's a shift that comes with that.
0: Anytime anyone other than a white middle-aged man puts forward a new idea, it tends to get a lot of pushback from white middle-aged men, particularly when it's an idea that challenges the historical greatness of white middle-aged men. How, how is your research being received in New Zealand?
1: It's been really exciting to us that people have really taken up. Um, they've been passing around our research. It's been all over Facebook and Instagram. And what's really exciting, actually, is that uh, we've all had many um, of our relations, many people from the Maori community, many people from parts of the community that would not traditionally be interested in Antarctica. Uh, they've been coming up and asking questions and actually getting interested. And I think that's fantastic. So um, we've been really um, moved, actually, by the interest that it's generated. You know, I, th- I think there are people who are used to one version of history and it's difficult sometimes uh, to wrap your head around another version of history, another, um, you know, is evidence that really cracks open those um Narratives of first discovery by Europeans in the nineteenth century, right but you know the the evidence that we bring doesn't denigrate those stories. It's still a great achievement to to reach Antarctica in the conditions that the early European explorers did. What we've found doesn't diminish that activity. Um, it's always difficult to be in Antarctica and particularly for those explorers. But I think what we're doing here is we're adding real richness to the narrative and saying uh, there are some other ways that people reached Antarctica. You know, the Polynesians were um, exemplary navigators. You know, they, they navigated and sailed across the Pacific Ocean between many different islands that were quite small in the Pacific. Um, excellent navigators, you know, huge astronomical knowledge. So, um, let's celebrate that activity and those achievements as well as the others. Let's not ignore that part of history. So, you know, there's plenty of room here for, um, for us to have great respect for all of these achievements. Uh, but let's just not focus on the, the one that we're familiar with, with, you know, in school and that does focus on white men. There's a huge richness across all of our, society. There are women who have been to Antarctica. There are many different nationalities now who are doing different work in Antarctica. So let's let's celebrate what we can.
0: The traditional white middle-aged man narrative about the discovery of Antarctica is a, a three-way race between Russian, British and American interests. And it's a matter of years or, in some cases, weeks in the, the different voyages and expeditions that might have sighted at the Antarctic continent first. So to start thinking in terms of centuries difference is really exciting. And the pushback that I'm seeing most is arising in people that take, for example, Eric the Red discovering greenland a thousand years ago which the information comes from a saga and the mariners were far less competent they'll people will take that at face value that eric the red discovered greenland and then they'll push back that these far more competent mariners from polynesia they they couldn't have been anywhere near antarctica there's no point for them to go they'll, they'll find any excuse to to run that narrative out of contention. And I'm finding that disappointing. I'm actually shedding friends at the moment because that very racist thread that they don't recognize as racist, but I didn't didn't know about them before, is coming to the fore because their prized white primacy in Antarctica is being challenged. And Mm -hmm. it's very disappointing to see, but I'm, I'm... I'm incredibly heartened to hear about the reaction in New Zealand and it just reinforces mm. my my concern that I made a mistake in moving back to Australia in 2006.
1: Mm. Well, you know, history is very selective, right, and it is always told by the victor. Uh, so I think that we all gain when history um, embeds or weaves in the narratives of many different groups. Um, you know, humans have always sought the unknown. We've always been interested in the unknown. There are stories... Uh, in New Zealand. So Hui Te Rangi Ora is the Polynesian um, voyager that we mention here is travelling to the Southern Oceans in the um 7th century. But there are others as well. So Tamareriti is another explorer from uh, New Zealand, from Aotearoa, New Zealand, who went south. And he went south to look for the origins of the Aurora Australis. And I think that's a really common human thread that we are interested in what's unfamiliar, we're interested in what's beyond the horizon. So for me, it's um, it's much less about who was first. I mean, some people have that competitive mindset where they're interested in who was first to do something. But for me, it's much more interesting to think about uh, the exploration of ideas, the exploration of our world, the connections that we have. And so Again, if we think about whales, we talked a little bit about whales in those papers. You know, whales um, travel down uh, from the tropics, from the the central Pacific, places like Tonga and the Hawaiian Islands, and they move right down past the coast of New Zealand, past the coast of Australia, go south to feed, down to Antarctica, and then back again. So, this is just one example of how the world is interconnected. And so, for me, one of the great of so this, which is actually um, about creating connections for a much wider group of people uh, so that we can think about um, our world in a different way. Yeah.
0: Professor Wehi, thank you so much for your time and insights and perspectives. I'm looking forward to following your research and hope to speak to you again at some point in the future.
1: That's awesome, Matt. Do you want to hear, do you want to know about the most harrowing thing I experienced in Antarctica though before I go?
0: Oh, yes, please. I forgot (laughs) because I'm a crap journalist and barely know what (laughs) I'm doing. Not at all. Not
1: at all. Um, I loved Antarctica. So, and I'll tell you about an experience that I had on board uh, the ship. We were going down to Rothera, which is one of the British Antarctic stations on the Antarctic Peninsula. And there was um, an enormous amount of ice at that stage, and the most exhilarating um, and I guess harrowing experience that that we had on that ship was uh, breaking through the ice to get there. Um, and it took us a couple of days. We were going, I think, it's something like three miles an hour. It was incredibly slow. The noise was phenomenal. If you've ever heard ice cracking. Um, and we were lucky, we were allowed to go up onto the bridge. So I remember uh, watching the captain and the other crew and they were watching incredibly carefully as we moved through this ice field. So we weren't in an icebreaker, right? We were just in a ship with a strengthened hull. Um, because of course, sea ice has a different density to ice that comes off the glaciers, which is much more dense. So if we were trying to crack through that kind of ice, uh, it wouldn't have been great, but the sea ice our ship could do. So we spent uh, this these very long days, amazing days, just inching forward, cracking through the ice. Sometimes going backwards because you know it didn't work. We had to back up and then have another go forward. Um, but absolutely stunning, and I I love that. And I realised that for me, exploration is one of the things that is in my blood. Um, I found it incredibly exciting. Not everybody did, but um, for me, that was one of the most inspiring things. And it's funny because it's a bit like watching paint dry, right? In a sense, nothing happens. You are just inching your way through an ice field where all you can see is ice, and yet it's what it was the most exciting experience of my life, probably. So you know, there you have it.
0: Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. Thanks again for your time. And um, yeah, as I said before. Looking forward to to following your research and reading further papers.
1: Hey, it's a real pleasure, Matt. So thank you for asking me. And yeah, if you want to send me your link when you when you get your podcast sorted, I'd love to have a listen as well.
0: Oh, great.
1: Yeah, so Himahinoi koe. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If the article abstract in the interview with Associate Professor Wehi whetted your appetite for new and exciting perspectives on Southern Ocean history you might be interested in reading a follow up article Associate Professor Wahi Lead authored Nature, Ecology and Evolution, May 2021 Transforming Antarctic Policy and Management with an Indigenous Maori Lens. If, on the other hand, with white hot white rage that anyone would consider anything that might usurp your national or racial preeminence in the Southern Ocean by as much as a decade, let alone several centuries, fuck off. This podcast is not for you, and I'll thank you to stop listening before the critical race theory lens I'm trying to apply causes you blood pressure issues resulting in an embolism and... No. Wait. Keep listening. You deserve to hear it. You earned the privilege by not letting those rascally liberals and communists taint your life with their social justice and such. Own those libs by listening to my output until it hurts. Share it with your libertarian friends and your racist Uncle Frank. Oh... I'll be so owned by you lot listening to me and unable to do anything about it. Oh, the woe of it, the owningness. I am bested by your facts and logic and access to your ears. Next up, Elodie Compress. Anyone with any interest in marine science in Victoria will know Elodie, as she's been either the prime mover behind or a prominent component of a number of events celebrating local marine biodiversity And coastal ecosystems. I first met Elodie at Nerd Night when I gave the 15 minute version of my Diving with the Kiwis Among the Penguins presentation. She invited me to present the long term version at Pint of Science the following year, which she was helping organise. Besides altering the way I pronounce most French nouns used in Antarctica, she gave me the stellar interview and the accompanying images of elephant seal wieners in the water. Speaking this episode to Elodie, how do you say your surname? Compass. I'll let you say it because I don't think <laughs> I pull that off. <laughs> <All good. laughs> and can you tell Ice Coffee listeners how you first became interested in Antarctica?
2: Sure. Um, so I was studying my um, second year of bachelor. And I was uh, in Brittany, in France, in Brest, to be precise. And um, a friend of mine saw an ad for uh, positions in the French Antarctic and Sub-Antarctic territories. And uh, she told me at the jo- as a joke, or so she thought at the time, um, oh, that'd be the perfect job for you. And... Uh, I looked at the ad and I was like, yes, indeed, I want to go. Where do I sign? Um, So I attended a seminar for people that were interested in this type of positions Um, and to give a bit bit of context. So there's typically around five to six positions for field assistants in um, different Antarctic and sub-Antarctic territories. Um, every year so it's it's very competitive Uh, but this is all managed by the French Polar Institute in Brest and um, under that there's a few different labs that do mostly ecology um, that you know train up the, the scientists that are going so I found out about the opportunity went to a seminar and at the time you know, I was very passionate about the ocean, uh, but I didn't know much about birds. And the first thing I was told or I was asked if, was if I had experience with birds. And I was like, oh, no, but surely I can learn, um, you know, seagulls, penguins, I can find out, you know, what they do and how to study them. Um, so anyway, I did a lot of volunteering and um to get more experience with bird handling and bird watching um and after five years of persevering because it's very competitive i managed to get a position there to go to kagan island so that's one of the serb on type territories um and i stayed a little over six months um, on the island to study well mostly birds but also marine mammals
0: and- how prominent <clears throat> pardon me how prominent is the french history in antarctica and the french presence in antarctica in the mind of the average french citizen
2: i'm not sure that a lot of french people are aware of the history i think most of them are aware that we have a base in tawdely uh, but I'm, um, um, yeah, I would say probably not a lot of people know the the history both in Antarctic and in the sub Antarctic territories.
0: And how did you voyage to the Kogwalan Islands?
2: Uh, so that's from Reunion Island, which is a small island near Mauritius and Madagascar. Um, so we live from there on a vessel called Marion Dufresne. And it takes about, so the Marion Dufresne does a loop between um, three different French subantarctic Antarctic tree trees. The first one is Crozet, which is about, obviously it depends on the weather, but I would say about three or four to five days to reach the island. Usually we stop there, um, on each island, we usually stop anyway because, um, you know, the helicopter needs to drop off the food and the water and the gas to the shelters and to the main base. Um, so we usually have a bit of time in each sort of location or each island. So that's the first stop. And then it takes another three to four days to re- reach Kaganan Island. Again, depends on the weather, depends what the vessel's doing as well, the ship is doing um the first time I went was on an oceanographic campaign so that actually took quite a lot longer to reach Kerguelen just because they were doing um a variety of measurements and and experiments and things like that um and then so Kerguelen is sort of the middle stop. um usually the ship stays there for a few days because it's a big island and there's quite a few shelters um, that, you know, need to get food and water and gas dropped off and any, you know, maintenance and things like that, um, the crew will take care of that as well. And then the the last island on this sort of voyage is uh, Amsterdam. And that's, we're now, you know, talking about a subtropical uh, location. And um, and then it takes, so between Kegel and Ireland and Amsterdam takes about so about five days, um, and then between Amsterdam, back to Reunion Islands, about seven days. So it can take up to a month for the Marion du to go through the whole sort of voyage and, and you know, drop people off on the way.
0: You spent six months on the islands. What are the facilities for the French expeditioners there?
2: So the, the main base is actually quite comfy. Uh it's a little village that has everything that you know we need. Uh, there's a library, there's a gym, a little cinema, and um yeah, accommodation is nice. We all have um personal rooms with you know, ensuite bathrooms and um so yeah, and it has a big building with the the, the kitchen and sort of living areas. Um, so, yeah, nice and comfortable. So that's, that's the main base. And on, on Keginan Island, um, there's about, in, in summer, which is the busiest time, um, can probably fit about 120 people. Uh, it drops right back to about 50 in winter where, you know, for about five months um, the boat won't be able to come for food or for anything else or to drop off people. So people there during um winter are in isolation there. Uh, but outside of that the boat sort of comes back um every month or months and a half. Um and then so we have this main base and then we have what we call isolated sites. Um so they're huts and cabins that have been built at like strategic places on the island. So typically close to seabirds and marine mammal colonies so we have you know colonies of uh penguins albatrosses petrels storm petrels a lot of different seabirds and we also have um colonies of uh fur seal and fur seal sorry and elephant seals so these these huts as i said are like built at strategic places And scientists and their crew, so we usually, we never go alone. So if other scientists are available who come with us, that's great. Otherwise, we have to sort of recruit volunteers on base. So it might be a nurse or a cook or, you know, someone from the army uh, that you will train up for, you know, this trip, this field trip they're coming on um, to help you with. And um, so, yeah, it could be, could be anyone. And then the, the facilities is really um, the sort of quality, I would say, of the facilities really depend on where you're going. So there's still some sites that have, you know, that are visited frequently that are bigger and have, um, well, usually they're closer to base as well. So tractors can come and, you know, drop off anything that scientists need. But some sites are further away. So some sites you might need to, you know, you might need a full day hike to get there. Um, So obviously these sites don't have as much sort of, um, as much, yeah, food, as much comfort, as much, um, you know, extra things that we might need there. So there's definitely no, on, on, you know, any of these huts and cabins, there's no, Running water. Uh, there's no proper toilets, nothing. But yeah, we usually have big water tanks, um, some some gas for cooking and heating. We've got solar panels as well on the, most of the huts, so um, that takes that takes care of some of the you know the electricity that we need in terms of charging laptops. To, for example, I was deploying devices. Uh, like GPS devices on on seabirds, so we need a, the the laptops to program them. Um, so we need we need some form of electricity, um, and then yeah, it's always nice to have some extra light at night. Although in some huts we use candles. Um, so yeah, it really depends on you know where on the island you end up being.
0: When I look at the position of the islands on a globe. Is the exact spot I really don't want to be sailing? It looks like it's it's at a latitude that it's going to cop the absolute worst weather that the southern ocean can generate. Is that the experience?
2: Yeah, totally, but uh, somehow it's still so worth it, you know, like sometimes you just wonder, why am I doing here what am I doing here it's It's ridiculous. It's cold. It's windy. Sometimes, you know, the rain or the hail actually blows horizontally right in your face, and you're never quite comfortable. Uh, it depends on the work you're doing, but most of my work was, um, yeah, monitoring seabirds or marine mammals, and I was outside for, you know, probably fourteen hours of the day, um, and quite, quite ins intense work um so yeah i was never quite comfortable but yet it's the best place i've ever been in like it's just incredible because um wildlife in this place hasn't you know associated us with threats because you know it's only recent that humans have started coming to this site so um you know you can live amongst penguins amongst albatrosses amongst seals and it's fantastic because everything happens right in front of you you know when you I'm I'm French obviously so back back in France but also in Europe and to some extent here you know when you go bird watching or you know watching wildlife in general you might see you know the species that you're looking for but you might not necessarily see actual, you know, behaviors. Uh, but on and for example, everything happens right in front of you. So you, you might see an albatross actually laying an egg or, you know, you see penguins feeding their chicks. You see them mate, you see them fight, you see them rest. It's just incredible that it happens so close to you. You don't need binoculars because um, everything's you know so close to you, and for ecologists, it's also a dream. Because you know, some birders will tell you it's quite um, you know quite an effort to set up you know networks of nets and things like that to catch your birds. But over there, because you can come so close to them, you just literally catch them by hand. Um, which is, you know, much easier. Um, so yeah, it's it is a place that can get absolutely freezing and, you know, hard, really hard to, you know, to live to be outside. But at the same time, you know, it's it's one of the best places if you into wildlife.
0: Are there many remnants of the? the whaling station or the farms that are established on the islands?
2: Yes, actually, um, there's one site where okay. people can go called Port Couvreux, and that was an old whaling station. It's actually quite eerie to go there. Uh, I, when there was a, a colleague that was actually studying um, cats, so there's a, a population of cats that have been well, yeah, cats had been left um left behind when um settlers left and I can't actually remember when that was precisely. Uh but after that they, you know, multiplied and now there's um the there's semi-education programs and there's people studying the impacts of, of cats and the results of the program. So um uh, that's the reason why you know for a moment i forgot about penguins and albatrosses and seals and i um went over there to to help my colleague and um we actually stayed um yeah right on the on the the remaining whaling station there and it's quite yeah it's quite incredible and i'm you know <laughs> i'm glad it's not running anymore but sometimes it kind of it almost feels like it is like you can Because I know the history as well. I know what went on in these places. Um, Sometimes, you know, if you close your eyes, you can almost sort of leave it.
0: (laughs) I speculated in an episode recounting Operation Tabarin and the British presence in Antarctica during the Second World War. uh, Because the Australian Navy mined the approaches to parts of the islands, I wondered if French ships need to take that into account, if those sea mines still hold sway in the voyage and navigation there.
2: I don't have the answer to that. I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. That's a good question, but, yeah, I, I just don't
0: know. No, that's cool. The uh, the intertidal always catches my attention wherever I go. Um do you get the opportunity at the islands to see what's living below the surface during the, the low tide or is the tidefall sufficient that you can actually see some marine life?
2: Uh, a little bit. So if you, yeah, you can see the massive kelp forests on some areas um, where, you know, this, this algae are so long. It's, it's amazing. Um but you you rarely see what's under there because it's so dense um but you you can definitely see that and you see the the sort of you know the fronds of the kelp sort of moving in and out in the waves and that's that's really quite cool um one thing that we got to experience which which was really cool cuz it's not always the case that it's possible. It depends on the weather. Um, And it also depends on whether the doctor on base approves of that or not, but it's it's definitely under the supervision of um, the doctor on base is a swim with uh, seals. So with elephant seals, when they learn to swim, they kind of stay very close to the shore. Uh, It's very, very cute. yeah they're really playful um so for people who want to participate you know they get put in this um dry suits and so you know well I, i'm a diver here in melbourne so uh, i'm used to that kind of equipment but uh, not everybody is so you know people are quite sort of clumsy and duck their head on the water and then um when i did the first thing that um happened to me was this baby elephant seal that would have been you know about a meter or something bit bit bigger perhaps um just kissed my mask my mask and cuz i don't know it was curious and playful and um it acted like a suction cup and when <laughs> when the seal sort of you know try to get away from me my my mask started flooding with very very cold water um it's about you know the water over there's about one or two degrees so that wasn't that part per se wasn't super fun um but having these seals just you know go and and sort of kiss you and you know rap against you, and that that's very fun that's that's an experience that you know i I'm very fond of and and a lot of people really like you know swimming with this um baby elephant seals
0: My God, do you have any photographs of that that event
2: uh yeah, I've got a few yeah.
0: Oh, I would, I would very much love to see them, but if you could um, send me one that I could make the, the signature for this episode, that is just wild. I had no idea that the... Yeah,
2: cool.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> yeah,
2: nah, it is, it is.
0: <laughs> the The Marion Dufresne, uh, how did you find the sea voyage? Do you get seasick yourself or was the sea kind to you in the, in the Southern Ocean?
2: Um, it was pretty wild out there, but I have to say that Marion Dufresne is a very big ship, so uh, not a lot of people end up being seasick. There's always a few, um, but it's definitely way less compared to other, um, you know, other vessels. And now I'm forgetting. Oh, gosh. Uh, the... Um, no, what's the name? The one that lives from Hobart. Astrolab. Yes, yes, the Astrolab. Um so the Astrolab in comparison, that's the that's the ship that leaves from Hobart and goes to Terra Deli, so to Antarctica, um, is much, much smaller. So people tend to, you know, feel the movements of the waves much more and um and uh <laughs> Because of that uh French people, especially the ones that have been on this kind of voyage uh call it gastrolab <laughs> um so yeah, <laughs> but the du Dufresne is is actually so big that you know you yeah you, if you're lucky, you might not get seasick. I only remember one time where I felt meh, my stomach was a bit funny and but the weirdest thing, we had we had a big storm and I wasn't seasick but I just really, my brain just really didn't compute what was happening. I was inside the ship and I was um, sort of going up the stairs but because the boat was in this descending phase, I was almost walking horizontally and that was just a really sort of weird experience um but yeah that that one storm I was in. you know really seasick but we had to really be careful about where we put our stuff making sure that you know everything is sort of secured with we have this um this ropes and sort of bungee cords and things like that and um yeah eating is kind of a challenge eating and drinking so you've got to you know hold your glass and your plates and you know try not to make a mess so um yeah that's fun um yeah at first it was a bit of uh getting used to but you know you get used to it afterwards
0: the you mentioned the helicopters taking materials ashore is that the case for all ship to shore operations or do you launch boats when you're in the sounds at the islands uh
2: yeah most i'd say most um on most voyage the helicopters there um but they don't only use the helicopter they also launch some boats um to help with you know whatever tasks need to be done so sometimes it's both the helicopter and other little you know pneumatic boats that are running um, but, you know, it might be that the weather isn't suitable for the helicopter but it's suitable for the boat. So um, it really depends on the conditions, What what is being used, and, and it depends on what tasks need to be performed. So, you know, in this kind of operations, you always have to take into account the fact that, you know delivery of of food or water or gas might not be possible um so yeah and then everybody everybody's plans have to change um but yeah I, ultimately in these kind of locations the weather dictates everything um so if the weather's suitable for the helicopter to fly or for the boats to you know ge- go and deliver foods and water and gas wherever it needs to go then that's great if it's not suitable then you know sometimes it has um. to wait for the next you know the next boat a month after that or something like that
0: um elodie thank you so much for your time and your insights the first french guest for Ice coffee and i hope it's not the last time we speak to you i hope that you get back to the south. At some point and come back with more stories for me particularly if you get to interact with baby seals of other species that was really cool (laughs) uh and also if you have any if you have any recommendations on french literature about the french presence in antarctica that's that's something that i'm a bit short on at the moment so i'd be most grateful for that but that the photograph of the elephant the baby elephant seal swim event Oh that would be that would be sorry. <laughs> I'll
2: cool. dig that up for you. <laughs> Thanks again, Elodie. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Thank you for having me.
0: Finally, though in reality firstly, Evan Townsend spoke to me about the birth of a flag. I'm speaking to Evan Townsend after a long period of online dialogue. I'm finally speaking to him as close to face to face as you can do from halfway across the world but at least in real time. Uh, Evan, can you tell Ice Coffee listeners about your links to Antarctica? What's your Antarctic story?
3: Sure. Um, well, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners can probably relate, uh, my Antarctic story starts with a fascination from a distance. Um, I think uh, a lot of the the same things that draw most people to the continent, the fact that it's so remote, um, the sound. The fact that it's uh, such a harsh climate, um, and it, it was really almost a place of fantasy growing up. You know, <laughs> I, I remember too when I was in elementary school, uh, I had this assignment. We got to take a country and write a report on it, and I chose Antarctica. And, and they were like, "Well, that's that's not a country." Um, so that made me even more fascinated. Um, and I finally got the chance to go down as a steward in the summer of 2016, which is a fancy way of saying I was a dishwasher. Um, and that was my first trip down. And then I returned again for the winter of 2018. And that is where I first uh, conceived of a flag for
0: Antarctica. you were based at McMurdo Station for both of those contracts? That's right. I was at McMurdo for both. So what can you, can you talk us through the, the conception of the flag for Antarctica?
3: Yeah. So the story of the flag for Antarctica starts with a different flag. Um, and, and that flag is the pride flag. So, I brought a bunch of flags down with me heading into the winter because I thought I I didn't want to just stare at blank walls during my, my winter on the ice. So flags were an easy thing that I could just hang up on my walls, but they could also, you know, not take up much of the very limited uh, luggage capacity. Um, Because when you fly down, you have a very strict weight limit. Um, so, one of those flags I brought was a pride flag, and one of my coworkers saw it hanging on my wall and suggested that we take a photo with the flag, which I thought was a great idea. And we took that photo, and I didn't really expect much to happen. Um, but then it sort of went viral and it started getting published in a bunch of different countries, a bunch of different magazines, um, TV stations, even. And I started getting messages from people around the world who were saying things like, you know, this means a lot to see this photo. Um, this is an incredible thing uh, to come across. And so I started thinking about that. I thought, you know, the Antarctic community were similar in a lot of ways in that we're spread across the world, right? We're, we're not bound by specific geography. Uh, we're not bound by specific language. But we do have common interests um, and common experiences in some cases. And visibility could be something that would be really important um, in advancing some of our interests and in helping build this community. But there wasn't really a flag like that. Uh, I thought about what would what would I feel if I saw a photo with an Antarctic flag, similar to the one that we had taken with the Pride flag. And I don't think I would feel that much to be totally honest. And I think a lot of people feel the same. So I wanted to create a symbol that was community driven, that people felt like was theirs and and could represent whatever Antarctica they wanted it to represent. So that's, that's where true South first came from.
0: And the, the flag itself is really striking in its simplicity and symbology i find a lot of flags get very involved and people put words on them at which point i think you've probably failed at vexillology what what background in flag design did you have or did you come up to it from first principles just thinking about the design
3: Yeah. So the words on the flag I knew was a big no-no <laughs> from the beginning. Um, I, I have always been interested in flags. Generally, I studied communication in, in university, and uh, I'm also working in education. So I think a lot about how to effectively communicate an idea. And I think about how to do that visually. And I think flags are just such a fantastic example of that, or at least. Good flags are, <laughs> and I, I find that the best flags are the ones that are, like I said, community-driven. And in order for them to be driven by a community, it has to be simple enough that people can bring their own meaning to the flag. So this wasn't meant to be prescriptive. I wasn't telling people what America should be or or what it should look like to them. I wanted to keep it simple enough um, that it could be universal to anyone's experience of the continent.
0: Um, in case there's listeners that haven't seen the True South flag, can you describe the, the design? Sure. So the
3: flag is uh, a rectangle divided into two horizontal stripes. The top stripe is navy and the bottom stripe is white. And those represent the long nights and long days, respectively. And in the centre of the flag, there is a diamond, And it's what's called counter change. So the top half of that diamond is white against the Navy background. And the bottom half is Navy against the white background. And it's divided in such a way that the top half resembles a peak. And that represents the icebergs, the glaciers, the mountains, um, the peaks that sort of define the Antarctic horizon. And then below that, the Navy half of the the diamond assembles a composite and it's pointing to sound. And together, those two shapes represent a diamond for the hope of
0: America's future. That's such... It's powerful imagery, but it's powerful symbology too. When you came to that design, um, well, first of all, did you prototype it? Were there other designs that fell by the wayside?
3: So I was making this first on a computer program. Um, I, so it was a bunch of fiddling until I got it right. <laughs> I don't have earlier versions saved. But yeah, this, this was not a one and done sort of thing.
0: There were iterations. And in making the flag flesh, what was the process of, of making the first iteration of the actual fabric flag? That's a
3: great question. Um, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, So in in McMurdo, we have a craft room. And that's something that we use uh, as a way to relieve stress. Um, There's not a lot else to do when you're down in Antarctica. So we find our ways to keep ourselves occupied. And during the winter, I also managed this recreational craft room as part of my responsibilities. And we have fabric in there. and those pieces of fabric are actually old pieces of tents or of field bags, um, just sort of like scraps. We, we don't bring down fabric specifically for crafting. It's just leftovers.
2: Um,
3: and so that's what I use to make the very first iteration of the plan. What I don't tell most people about the story is I don't actually know how to sew. And so sometimes I'll see, I'll read articles that get that wrong. I used fabric glue which is not <laughs> the most uh it's it's not the fanciest part of the story so i, I, I sometimes leave that out but yeah it, it was fabric gr-
0: glue canvas and uh scraps of field bags. that's fantastic and it's it's taken on a life of its own since that prototype uh what what contexts have you seen the true South flag turning up in and in what forms?
3: That's a great question. Um, so I have just, just right before this call, I got a, a photo from Palmer Station. So as we're speaking, it's, it's midwinter still in, well, I suppose it's midsummer in the US, but it is the 21st here. And it was recently celebrated in Antarctica. So at Palmer Station, they had uh, a bunch of True South flags on toothpicks that they stuck in all of the food to label them. Um, And so that's just incredible. Um, I've seen it show up in all seven continents so far. Um, I've seen it show up on profile pictures uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so
0: it's, it is kind of
3: proliferating. Social media is definitely a place of turn
0: To hear that it's being so readily accepted is really encouraging. Such widespread acceptance is really heartening. And it, 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 to me, speaks of the community that you were, you were mentioning earlier that Antarcticans feel a sense of community outside of their nationalism, outside of their, their corporate identity. So it's, it's wonderful to hear that it's receiving that that endorsement and that use. Absolutely. I'm very excited about getting out the glue and craft paper and my screen printing supplies and doing my own attempt at autodidacting the True South flag into my life. I can't wait to see that. Uh some of the versions I've
3: actually seen have been children coloring it. So whatever form it takes, I'm, I'm always
0: tickled to see it. That's really sweet. And I'm really grateful that you had the insight to start that process. I, I think I could have gone an entire lifetime without having the idea. Antarctica warrants its own flag. So the insight itself is laudable, but the the product that you generated from that insight is beautiful. And I feel a bit late off the bat interviewing you about it. It was actually an episode of 99% Invisible that I listened to. It's like, oh, Evan, um, to hear Roman Mars just with his lovely dulcet tones um, waxing lyrical about your design. It's still like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to sound really naff compared to him.
3: <laughs> you know, Matt, I actually had the same reaction as you. Um, I had no idea that they were doing this episode. Uh, they didn't actually reach out to me or interview me. Uh, they just read some of the materials online. And so I had no idea it was coming until one of my friends sent me the episode. And I was like, oh, that is my name in 99% Invisible. Wow. <laughs>
0: I can't think of myself turning up in any of the podcasts that I listen to, other than "Died in a Fiery Accident" was the the coda.
3: Well, you were listening to the wrong podcast then.
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> um, I interviewed Amanda Zimmerman about her time at McMurdo recently and it was really interesting to several of the listeners that are either applying for or in the selection process for roles within the NSF support program. Do you have any advice for people that might be facing their first first season at McMurdo? Well, that's a, a great question.
3: Um, you know, I, I think, a uh, the flag, McMurdo is so many things to so many different people. And it's it's beautiful in that. Uh, there are a lot of things that are similar to, in people's experience. Um, one thing I'll say is, is, don't expect to be bored. Uh, that's a, I think something a lot of people have in mind heading down and something I certainly had in mind too. you know, you think of you think of America as sort of this, Lifeless this place, this, this blank slate, but it's so full of of color and of traditions and of activities, and there's always something going on um, that you could fill literally every hour of the day with. Um, so, so brace yourself for actually a very fast-paced and very exciting time if you're headed down to the ice.
0: How many people were on station during the winter that you spent in two thousand and eighteen? So when I was
3: there, we had 132 people, I believe was the number. So the largest by far in terms of winter numbers, but still relatively small if you're coming from a population hub anywhere else in the world.
0: Right. And what's your personal experience of the the toastiness that can set in? Did you find yourself getting a bit um, out of step with yourself or any, any unusual mindsets or behaviors that you started to notice in yourself? Well, Matt, I, I,
3: (laughs) I certainly did before and after. I think the big difference is now I can blame it on my winter in Antarctica. Anytime I'm forgetful, I say, (laughs) oh, it must have been the darkness. Uh, You know, I was there for a while. (laughs)
0: Oh, Evan it's it's so wonderful to speak to you for the first time and hopefully not the last time and thank you so much for giving ice coffee listeners your time and thank you for giving the world the true south flag
3: thank you Matt it is such a pleasure to chat with you um, after a few years now of messaging back and forth it's it's great to be on the podcast
0: oh it's um it's feedback like yours that fuels that fire. Thank you. Evan's been listening to the series for many years and remains on the hook to kick off his own series, Off the Map, which is too good an idea to allow to lie dormant. Make and fly the flag he designed and bug him to get Off the Map, Off the Ground. I'm making my True North flag out of bits of old ice coffee t-shirts I wore to destruction and will incorporate the design into future iterations of the Ice Coffee logo and subsequent screen printing projects. Watch this space. Late edition. I received a copy of Operation Deep Freeze 2 Goonie Birds by Ronald Stefano, hot off the press, courtesy of Thomas Henderson. It's not a review copy, it's a gift, but I'll give Ronald Stefano big props regardless. His history of Douglas R4Ds in US Navy service in the lead up to and during the IGY is a cracker. The density and granularity of information is matched by the photographic record, but the icing on this cake made of awesome are Ronald's illustrations of the airframes and their accoutrement. Stunning images, carefully researched. I'm really grateful to Thomas for arranging a copy for me. I've mentioned his documentaries published through Graceful Willow Productions, several times in the series, and the information he drew together in each audiovisual outing contributed significantly to the scripts recounting American Antarctic adventures in the 20th century. I need to order a new copy of Ice Eagles, as I gave my own one away again, and I need to own and watch his documentary 150%, as I'm planning on addressing the importance of ham radio enthusiasts To the communications and morale of Antarctic stations in the IGY, and Thomas is the only publisher I'm aware of to have given the topic the attention it deserves. Thanks this episode also going out to Steve, who alerted me to and helped resolve the issue of the RSS feed only holding the most recent hundred episodes. And thanks also to Robin, who highlighted a volume issue previously brought to my attention by Erica. I usually record at a very low level to try to minimise the amount of burping, farting and the microphones pick up, but I'll do my best to give the output volume another boost without introducing too much of my bodily functions. It's been a very mixed up past month, with Sydney going into lockdown and Melbourne following suit, and my wife and I receiving our second shots of COVID vaccine, and in my return to the trauma cleaning industry to keep the bills paid while her American style dessert pie business finds its feet. I'm giving her as much support as I can in order that she get the best possible shot at following this particular long-term dream, and so that I get my best possible shot at following my own long-term dream of eventually being a kept man with lots of pie to eat. If that means I have to don maximum PPE and deal with other people's bodily fluids once more, so be it. Fortunately, the trauma cleaning business is run by new owners and a former colleague I trained into the industry is my immediate supervisor and one of the best bosses I've ever worked for. So this episode I'm giving a hearty shout out to Paul Bagshaw. I'm proud that you thought highly enough of me to invite me back when the business changed hands and I'm thoroughly impressed at the way you're running the show with an eye for the well-being of those at the (laughs) coalface. Ah, we wish it was coal. I made a model of a putrescine molecule to photograph and add to the show notes. Take care and appreciate your coffee and get vaccinated so we don't have to come and clean up the mess.